Welcome to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast, a podcast all about leadership, change, and personal growth. The goal? To help you lead like never before in your church or in your business. And now, your host, Carrie Newhoff. Well, hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 385 of the podcast. My name is Carrie Newhoff, and I hope our time together today helps you lead like never before. Today's episode is brought to you by PushPay and Church Community Builder. Together, they have the brand new Church Stack app. You can learn more and increase connection and encourage giving by going to pushpay.com forward slash carry and dwell. It's an audio Bible app that you can get today by going to dwellapp.io forward slash carry. You can get 20% off an annual or lifetime subscription. Well, in today's episode, we go into a place we really haven't gone before on this podcast, almost 400 episodes in. I'm joined by Kayla Steckline. And in August of 2018, as many of you might remember, her husband, Andrew, died by suicide. And his death made news around the world, rocked not only his congregation, but the wider church leadership community. So uh, I sit down and have a very honest, open conversation with his widow, Kayla. And we talk about the unique pressures of ministry, what it's like to be a pastor's wife or a pastor in a growing church, Andrew's mental illness and um, his death and how to help leaders who are struggling. This is a really, really important conversation. Um, We talk about it a little bit. I went through a very dark period, my own leadership about uh, 15 years ago. And um, so, hey, this has been a very difficult year. I thought it was a very fitting conversation, well, at any time. But after 2020, when we see mental health at um, crisis levels now for leaders, uh, I thought this was a very helpful conversation, hopefully at a, at a time that is, is going to help you as well. Um, so Kayla um, lost her husband. He was pastor of Inland Hills Church in Chino, California. And in the wake of the tragedy, she embarked on a brave journey to better understand his battle with mental illness. And so uh, Kayla discovered along the way lots of things that uh, she was misguided and misinformed about when it comes to mental illness. So um, she wrote about it in her book. And um, we're going to talk about that book as well. You can find it anywhere books are sold. And it's called Fear Gone Wild. Uh, and of course, we have show notes for this as well. So I hope you'll access those. You can get those at kerryneuhoff.com slash episode 385. So this is a hard conversation, but a really, really important one. And I really hope, and I know Kayla does as well, that it helps. I know one commitment a lot of us share uh, who listen to this podcast is a commitment to scripture. And uh, daily Bible reading is one of my important, uh, most important personal disciplines. Have you yet checked out the Dwell Bible app? It's a really different app to help you get in the Word and stay in the Word. Some of their features include listening plans. You can start a daily habit of engaging with God through one of their, um, well, they got a variety of listening plans. Playlists. Yeah, believe it or not, depending on your mood. Sometimes you need encouragement, sometimes you need motivation, sometimes you need comfort. Uh, Well, uh, they have scripture playlists based on your mood. Dwell mode, you can use their mode to meditate on scripture, memorize and pray. And a brand new sleep timer, so you and your family can fall asleep to favorite books or stories of the Bible without losing your spot or draining your battery. So Dwell app makes a great gift so you can skip the wrapping and bless someone, maybe on your team or in your family this year. You can get the Dwell app by going to dwellapp.io forward slash carry. They will give you 20% off an annual 
or even a lifetime subscription. That's dwellapp.io forward slash carry, C-A-R-E-Y. I'm really excited to see that PushPay and Church Community Builder have banded together to bring you Church Stack. They bring all of the digital tools you need together for a seamlessly connected experience. So if you're interested in encouraging giving, nurturing community, and sharing your message, you've got to check out pushpay.com forward slash carry to learn more about Church Stack. That's pushpay.com forward slash carry. So we are moving into a uh, mature subject matter on this episode. We are going to talk about uh, Andrew's death by suicide. So if you normally listen with your family around, you may want to rethink that for this particular episode. I know a lot of you do listen with your kids in the car or whatever. On the other hand, if you have teenagers, you may absolutely want to dial this in. So um, anyway, without further ado, my conversation with Kayla Steckline. Kayla, welcome to the podcast. And just on behalf of all the leaders, just a, a deep empathy and for everything that you've been through over the last few years. I just want to acknowledge that and thank you for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me and thank you for acknowledging that. That means a lot. Yeah, it must. It's this really strange thing where, you know, the pain is so deep and absolutely the worst thing that most of us could imagine happening to us. And yet here you are talking about it sharing your story publicly, writing a book about it, giving interviews about it. So I just, I don't want to take that lightly. And I just want to remind everybody that this is a very real thing. Um, but one of the reasons I'm I'm very excited to have you on the show is I think the struggles that Andrew, and, and to a certain extent, as you share in the book, that the two of you went through as a couple are a lot of the struggles that, frankly, a lot of people in leadership go through. It's, uh, it's, it's a unique ending and a tragic ending um, but the struggles are just so universal. Yeah, I'm sure they are. I want to back way up, Kayla. Can you take us back? Because you do this a little bit in the book, to, but to when you and Andrew met, sort of your hopes and dreams and how what that season of your life was like. Yeah, so we met at this little tiny Christian college. It was smaller than my high school, a few <laughs> thousand people. It's called Vanguard University in Costa Mesa, California. And my best friend was dating his best friend. And one day they lived in this beach house, this grungy, like gross beach house right on the sand in Newport Beach. They they had made their own beds out of like plywood on the side of Home Depot. Uh, they had blown up one of the toilets. There was always sand like embedded into the carpet. It was just like this gross thing. 20 guys lived there. And so uh, one day she was over there visiting her boyfriend and she got into a conversation with Andrew and he was asking her about her friends. And so she showed him a picture of her, her girlfriends and he pointed at me and said her. And so I came over and I was so terrified. I brought a girlfriend with me and I came over to meet this guy that had picked me out of a picture. And at the time I hadn't been going on dates. Like I wasn't the kind of girl that guys pursued. I was pretty shy and awkward and clumsy. And so I went over there with a girlfriend and right away I was just completely drawn and kind of captivated by Andrew. He was different. Um, he wasn't like a normal, like 19, 20 year old college guy. Like he was so driven. Um, even just his appearance, just very put together and he knew where he was going in life and he was already like on the fast track and headed towards that. And so 
he asked me out again after that one beach house day. Um, even though we went on a bike ride and I was falling all over the road on this fixed gear bike, like he asked me out again and we went out again and again and again and fell in love really fast. And a year later in, um, December, it would have been November, 2009, he proposed. And then December, 2010, we were married. So you're young, got married, started a family shortly thereafter. Yeah. Yeah. So we got married, kind of went off on our own little adventure in Seattle. Um, just wanted to get away and kind of do our own thing and then ended up back in California and he was working at his parents' church that he had grown up in since he was three years old and was the creative arts director. And, uh, we've loved it. You know, we were full on in ministry. Um, I knew, that I was signing up for a life as a pastor's wife when I met him and married him. I knew that was going to be our life, and it was. I mean, we were full on in the trenches of ministry. And when we moved back from Seattle, um, just a few months later, his dad was diagnosed with leukemia. And so right away, Andrew stepped up to the plate even more, and he was basically co-leading the church with his dad at 23 years old. And shortly after, we um, started welcoming kids. We welcomed boy after boy after boy Mm -hmm. (laughs) into our family. So life was full, but life was good. You know, we had these three little boys, three and under, uh, we were leading this large, thriving, growing church. His father did end up passing away in 2015 from leukemia, um, but the church kept rallying around our family and rallied around Andrew, and Andrew pushed through so much um, through all of that. So it was a very difficult you know, beginning to marriage. Like here we are, barely a year married, and we're headed into this leukemia journey and full-on church, you know, he's leading the church and we're young and don't know what we're doing and we're welcoming these kids into our family. So life was full. We were figuring it out. Um, We were learning a ton, Um, but it was good. Like I really had everything I could have ever asked for and more. Like we were living in our dream home. I was driving the mom car. I got to be a stay-at-home mom and serve in ministry. I loved ministry. I served in the women's ministry. I served in the mom's ministry. I helped Andrew with as much as I could. And I loved it. I loved being a pastor's wife. I loved sitting in the front row on Sunday mornings to the right. And I would sit there every weekend and like, I'm, I'm his wife. I get to be his wife. That's my husband on stage. I'm the girl he's talking about in his messages. Like that was such an honor for me. And I was very proud of our life. I was very proud of my husband. Um, I was very proud of what we were doing. You know, it felt like our life had this higher calling, um, and it was just a really beautiful journey. Was that similar to the picture you had in your mind of what being a pastor's spouse would be? Because we all have this mental image, right? Mm-hmm. I think this is what it's going to be like. What was the same and what was different? Yeah, you know, I, I grew up in the church. I grew up attending every Sunday, um, but I didn't grow up leading the church like my yeah. husband's family did. And so I learned a ton. I was just constantly learning. And I think... There is way more behind the scenes that happens um, from Monday to Saturday, you know, that we don't see on Sunday. And, um, you know, especially when you're at the top, I think it's different when you're like a junior high pastor or like a, you know, secretary or whatever else other jobs there are at the church. But when you're at the top of an organization, it's lonely um, and it's difficult and you get the nasty emails and you get the, um, 
you know, just friction from the staff and, you know, everything kind of trickles to the top and you get pointed at and blamed for a lot of things. And so I think that maybe wasn't what I anticipated or expected. I think a lot of people think working at a church is going to be just this happy, jolly, everybody loves Jesus. It's going to be like amazing and it's an amazing environment. And most of the time I think it is a good environment, Um, but it was hard. Yeah, I think it was a lot harder than I thought it would be. But um, what made it worth it was that we had this higher calling. It was like, it's all worth it because we are leading people to Jesus. So it makes all the hard sideways energy, other things, like it makes it all worth it. Like we can look past the nasty email. We can look past the complaint. We can look past the hard week um, because it's worth it because we're doing this really beautiful work for the kingdom. So that's kind of where our mindset was. Um, but I really did love it. Like I really did love it and I miss it. Mm-hmm. Uh, Andrew was, cause we're going to talk about sort of his, his uh, difficult years and the time leading up to his death. Um, did he struggle like as a kid or a young adult with uh, mental health issues or was that more of a, an onset after his father passed away and he became the lead pastor how, how, what was his experience with that? Um, I wouldn't say that he struggled as a kid. I would say that Andrew um, had the kind of personality that was probably bent more towards anxiety in general, um, probably since he was in, I didn't know him, you know, in junior high and high school, I've just heard stories. Um, but he had a hard time relaxing since I met him. He had a really hard time relaxing, um, Mm. and was always just very driven and very serious, um, very intentional, driven for excellence. Even his appearance was always very, I would joke with him and tell him that he had OCD because he was just so particular. He was very particular um, and about his clothing and about his appearance and about his hair. Like he would pluck the little hairs if they were out of place and just cared a lot about those things. And so there were some of those types of things, um, but he hadn't had like any kind of official diagnosis or um, any serious struggles before um, the panic attacks started in 2017. Mm. Let's talk about some of the unique pressures of ministry because, um, you know, and, and leadership in general, anybody, and we have a lot of people who run their businesses, run churches, you know, are on the senior leadership team or senior pastors or executive directors of not-for-profit. What were some of the things you and Andrew uh, would say, wow, yeah, this was the, the, the tougher side of ministry that made you feel lonely or that made you feel like, oh, I don't know that we signed up for this. I feel like there's got to be a better way to lead the church. I think being a pastor is like the impossible job. Being the lead pastor is like the impossible job. Um, Leading an organization, um, our church, our staff was big. We had a staff of about 35 people. And so being basically the CEO of an organization and then also being the visionary and the voice and having to come up with these compelling messages weekend after weekend after after weekend. Um, and then to have the space (laughs) during the week to actually have the time to sit with God and be inspired and read scripture and read books and go for walks and like do the filling up that you have to do to keep pouring out authentically on the weekends while also leading an organization. I think that's just the impossible job. 
And so I know there's some churches that have separated that some where they have a teaching pastor and then a lead pastor that more leads the organization. But our church wasn't structured that way. It was all on Andrew's dad. And then when he passed away, it was all on Andrew. And I think Andrew had a really hard time with that. You know, he was drawn to the teaching. He loved the teaching and he would have loved to just be the teaching pastor, um, but he didn't want to give away the power. He didn't want to give away the control of um, the look and feel and vibe and, you know, the rest of it. And he still wanted to be able to have a say. And so he was never fully able to step into just being the teaching pastor. But I think, you know, there is a ton of pressure on pastors, especially in the world of social media. Um, You have to be like Instagram quotable. You, you know, you want to have this following. You feel this pressure to have this following on Instagram and big numbers and big likes and people coming to your church and reposting your stuff. And, um, it's just a lot of pressure. It's so much pressure. And then it is lonely. You know, I think oftentimes it can be hard. You have this um, paranoia as healthy. Andrew would call it like a healthy paranoia at the top of who you let in. Um, And it can be hard to know who on like who attends your church, who works at your church, like who to let into your circle, who to let into your friend group, who to let into your personal life. Um, And I think a lot of times people that are CEOs and lead pastors end up being very lonely and very isolated because they feel like they can't let anybody in because they can't show weakness. Um, They need to be this figure that they're trying to be, you know, on the weekends and trying to uphold that figure constantly. And so um, not showing weakness, not showing fault, um, just trying to be this person on and off the stage, I think can be so exhausting and it can be scary to let people in because you don't want to let them see the other sides of you. That isn't just the guy that's standing on stage with the microphone. You know, it's a, that's a different person. You're like in work mode. All of us go into work mode and different, the different jobs that we do. Like we're not that person all the time. And so, um, we really did have a hard time. I think having community, um, knowing who we could trust. Oftentimes, there's betrayal too. You have people on your staff that you think are going to be there forever, and they're going to be lifers, and you trust them, and you tell them things, and you let them in, and then they resign, and and they hurt you, you know. And so that happened too. That happened to some of our with our really close friends. And I'm like, oh, I can't be friends with that. That, that wife anymore because the husband left the church and now all of a sudden like our kids aren't friends anymore and I'm not friends with them anymore and it's just a different kind of work because it's so intertwined the personal life the spiritual life the work life is so intertwined and it's not like that in any other job like if you want to be an insurance agent you go to work nine to five that's your job they don't care about your personal life your spiritual life they don't care how much you're going to small group or reading your bible or tithing or you know doing all the other things um they don't care if you are getting a divorce or your kids having trouble like and all those other things affect your job in ministry they shouldn't but they do and and you can feel like you could be disqualified for your job when you're going through something personal um so i said a lot but i think there's just, I, i'm just letting so you go because i i <laughs> i get all of that kayla yeah. H- how did you handle that as andrew's wife like I, i'm thinking about yeah it's hard i mean we've had almost 
all of those dynamics happen to us. People you kind of let in, it's like, well, that didn't work particularly well. Or, you know, you're changing friend sets from time to time, or yeah. you really get hurt by people close to you. What? How did you handle that? It was really hard. And I think um, I'm more naturally like a people pleaser. And so I want people to like me. Mm. And so knowing that um, people don't like me or don't like Andrew or don't like the way we're doing things and feeling like we can't say anything um, to defend ourselves. Like that's the thing with, with, with ministry is like everyone else, they can leave the church and they can go thrash your name and they can go say terrible things about you but you're not allowed to say anything. You just have to take it. Um, and so I think that was really difficult. Uh, that part of it was really difficult for me. Um, I think I too struggled with friends and how much to let them into our like interior life and our home life. And the a lot of my friends attended the church. So Andrew was their pastor. And so it was hard to um, know how much to be vulnerable about and what we're going through. And I felt like I couldn't. There was a lot of things that were happening because my friends would also know those people that worked at the church. There was things that were happening on staff at the church that I wouldn't be able to share with anybody. And so um, you do kind of put up these walls and it's like this glass house that you live in and everybody can see in um, and you just have to kind of keep this a facade of like, we have it all together. I think that's the pressure of ministry is like keeping this facade that we have it all together. And I think I felt that um, even in the community, like taking my kids to the grocery store and one's throwing a tantrum um, in the middle of Target. And I'm like, I hope no one from the church is around and like seeing this happening right now, because this is so embarrassing. And this is like, I don't want them to think I'm a bad mom. There is like this this pressure, you know, of um, being this person that other people can look up to. And it's just, it's a tension. I, I think of it often as the, the necessity to be misunderstood. It's like, mm-hmm. there's a reason for this. I'm not talking about the temper tantrum thing. That's like normal parenting stuff, right? But if, yeah. if you have a situation at church, it's like, I can't tell you why this happened. So I'm just going to have to let you misunderstand me. Yeah. And that's, that's really hard. And then, um, you're pretty, you're very honest book. Um, and I want to come back to how Andrew's mental health started to really get impacted, but the two of you got to the point in the marriage where he was really struggling and that start sort of triggered some, some struggling, like everything you've described right now is like, that is like the diet of leadership that, that almost everybody who signed up for this ended up in. Uh, you had some unique challenges on top of that with Andrew's anxiety and panic attacks. But do you want to talk about what happens when he's got a lot of pressure, you've got a lot of pressure as his wife, as a mom, as a leader in the church in your own right, and the two of you are not in a good place? Because we've had seasons like that in our marriage. What was that like, Kayla? I feel like everything, I'm trying to go back in my Mm. mind to what that was like. Um, I feel like every, the main concern that I had um, was not wanting to get in the way of what God wanted to do on Sunday. Mm. And so I think I wanted to um, create as much 
of a drama-free, peaceful environment at home um, so that nothing would distract from the message that he was preparing for for Sunday. And um, I knew, like I knew there were certain things that I just couldn't bring up. Um, There were certain things I couldn't talk about on Saturday or Saturday night or or, or really during the week, there were certain things I couldn't ask about. There were certain names that I couldn't say. Um, there were certain things. So I would, I think I was more, it felt at times, um, like walking around on eggshells, um, not wanting to, um, cause any more emotional pain for Andrew, um, and just wanting to, be the good pastor's wife. You know, I just really wanted to be the good pastor's wife to the point um, where I, you know, for a season, it was really great. I just, I ended up where I had to do this, but for a season, I would get up at four, four o'clock in the morning, every morning, and I would take care of myself um, because if I didn't get up at four o'clock in the morning, there would not be time for me. And so I would get up and I would go downstairs and I would make my little pre-workout drink and I would sit at the kitchen counter and read my devotional and have my quiet time and drink my pre-workout and then go in the garage and have my workout and go upstairs and get myself ready all while he's still sleeping and the kids are still sleeping so that when the kids woke up, I would be ready for the day and I wouldn't have to disturb him so that he could keep sleeping. He could get himself ready for the day. He could get his head on straight. Um, and I would, you know, I would take care of the rest. And so I think I was constantly trying to keep this peaceful, to keep the peace, um, Mm. all the time, um, on date night and at home, um, just trying to not step on any booby traps and set anybody off. Um, so we really didn't, I mean, we really didn't have, I wouldn't say we had like a rough patch in our marriage. Um, I was happy. I was, you know, I felt like I'd married this good man that had a big calling on his life. That was, that was really gifted. I mean, he was a very gifted communicator. And so I just kind of sat back in awe and was like, I could never do what, what he does. And here I am now (laughs) doing what I'm talking on stages Mm -hmm. and I wrote the book and I'm doing what he did. But at the time I really thought I could never do what he does. Like I have no idea what it takes to pour out these beautiful messages every Sunday and to lead a staff of that size. Like I have no idea the pressure and the energy that that takes. And so, um, just really, I took on a lot, um, to a lot at home to try to alleviate any other pressure besides his work. And so our lives really did revolve around Sundays. And I think that's probably true for a lot of people in ministry. Like our everything led to Sunday. It was like every week was just this buildup for Sunday. And, you know, even down to the Saturday night routine that I talk about in the book where that was just so sacred. And um, yeah, mm. it's a completely, the life... The life I'm living now is just so completely different, and it's sad to say, and I don't want to say this to be taken the wrong way, um, so I want to be careful, but I feel like I have so much more freedom now outside of ministry because it was so exhausting, and I didn't feel like I could let my hair down. Um. 
it just felt like this rat race that was never ending. There's always Sundays always coming. Andrew would say that all the time, like Sundays always coming. Sundays just keep coming. They don't stop coming. And there's just always something. There's always drama with somebody or something. And so, you know, I miss those days and I loved those days and I loved being a pastor's wife and I loved the purpose and just walking onto campus and like beaming with pride that like I am part of this Deckline family and he is my husband and people know who we are. And this is such a beautiful, I can't believe this is my life. I miss parts of that. Um, I really do. But I think I just feel so much more freedom now to be fully who God created me to be and not to have to fit into the box of what I felt like I needed to be in ministry. That is so well articulated. Thank you. And maybe the best it makes gives me a whole new appreciation um, for even everything my wife has, you know, put up with, been through for the last three decades. And, um, you know, and I think that's a really sensitive understanding of some of the unique pressures of, of ministry. And I'll just echo what you said. Yeah. I think we probably need a better way to do this. <laughs> there, this, this is a pressure cooker at the best of times. And that's true of whether you lead a large church with 30 staff or 300 or three or you're all by yourself. It's just this this pressure. And until you've been in it, I was a lawyer uh, before I became a pastor. Like, you're right. People didn't care about your personal life. And I wasn't a lawyer when I went home. That was something I did. It wasn't something that I am. And when you're a Christian and you really believe this, and this is your personal faith, but it's also your job, um, I think of it as the perfect storm, right? What you believe and who you do and who you hang out with all come together at the same time. And it's just this box of really, really confusing things that when I was young, couldn't figure it out. Even now at this stage, I'm like still trying to figure it out <laughs> and I'm exiting right into a founding mm-hmm. role, not a, not a lead role. Um, thank you for that. That, that was a gift. Let's talk a little bit about Andrew's panic attacks and the anxiety and the depression and how that started to emerge. Because again, this is a significant thing. This is not a, a niche condition anymore. A lot of our listeners, a meaningful percentage of, of those listening to this podcast are going to go, yep, I've got anxiety. I've got panic attacks and yeah. I either could be diagnosed with depression or I have been. Um, so what was that like for you and Andrew? You know, I think the depression probably started trickling in after his dad passed away and he never took a day off. You know, he just kept working and kept going and was still in that machine and still in that pressure cooker. And now he's um, lead pastor. He had been for a while, but now yeah. there's no going back like dad. Yeah. yeah. And his mentor is gone. You know, the guy yeah. that he would go to for advice and direction and counsel is gone. Mm-hmm. And he's grieving that. I mean, he was mm-hmm. very, very close with his dad. And so it was a great loss for him and for our church. But Andrew wanted to lead our church through their pain. And so he kind of put his pain to the wayside. Um, but there would be days where he couldn't get out of bed. Um, in that, in those years before the panic attack started, there would be days where he couldn't go into the office because he couldn't get out of bed. Mm-hmm. And so at those should have been, I think, warning signs to me that like he's not okay. Um, but I think How, what, it, what, okay, know, so they should have been warning signs. But what did yeah. you think they were at the time? Because this is really important. Yeah. You know, I think. Um, 
I was frustrated. <laughs> I think I was like, dude, just show up for work and do your job. Like, how come you're not, you know, like you need to go. People need to see you. You need to rub shoulders with the staff. Like he would only go into the office once or twice a week. Um, the rest of the time he'd work from home because he'd be working on the message. And so when he would call out on those, on those one or two days when he was supposed to be in the office, I'm like, dude, you need to go. You need to go rub shoulders with staff. You need to go be around people. You need people to know you. They need to like you. You know, they, they like you need to be there. And so I think that was more the frustration for me. I think that made me more frustrated and I didn't understand it. But I didn't ask questions. I didn't ask him, um, why are you feeling so exhausted? Why are you having a hard time getting out of bed? We also had two young boys at the time. So I was, and I, and I was working at the church as the infant through kinder director. I worked at the church until we had our third kid um, part-time. So I was getting up and going into work. And, you know, I'm like, how come you're not getting up and going into work? <laughs> yeah. Too. So I think I wasn't able to see it um, through the lens of like empathy. Um, I think I was more like, you need to figure this out um, kind of approach, which isn't very kind or empathetic at all. Um, And he eventually did. You know, that was like a season where he had a really hard time. Um, And, you know, it may have been grief. It may have just been that grieving season after his dad passed away. Um, but he did, you know, he figured it out and he, he loved his job and he had so many creative ideas and vision for the future. Um, and it really was in the fall of 2017 when things majorly started to shift. Um, we'd had, we'd had a stalker issue in our family that I really think was this, the biggest invitation for fear for Andrew. And so this fear started creeping in and then that fear, manifested itself into panic attacks. And so he was having these very debilitating full body takeover panic attacks about two to three times a week. Like he thought he he was having a heart attack, kind of chest pain, that kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. At night, they would come on at night when he would try to fall asleep. He had trouble sleeping period. And I think that kind of triggered them. You'd be trying to fall asleep and couldn't fall asleep and then you'd get frustrated. And then this panic attack would come on. And um, he would be pacing around the house. He would be curled up in the fetal position. He would be trembling. I mean, the whole bed would be shaking. I'm like, dude, I have to get up to three little kids tomorrow. I have to sleep. You know, like you need to, what can I do? What can I do to help? What can I do to help like make this go away? Um, and there was nothing I could do. You know, there was nothing that, that I could do to touch the raging fear happening inside of his body. And there was nothing he could do either. It was more of like a waiting game. When they would come on, it would come on and start in his chest and be this really intense pain where he felt like he was having a heart attack. And it really would spread throughout his body where at times his extremities would go numb, his hands and his feet would go numb, his eyes would glaze over, his pupils would dilate. Um, I would know just by looking in his eyes that he was gone and that he was under a panic attack and that there was nothing that I could do. And so we were seeing doctors. He was seeing a natural doctor at the time. And, um, you know, she had prescribed a couple different things to help with anxiety and he had that medication, but it didn't work. It wasn't helping. And the panic attacks just kept happening. And thankfully for a while, you know, they were happening at night. So he was going to, he was kind of able to keep them under control, but then they started happening during the day. And that's when he ended up in the hospital. Um, You know, he had had a major panic attack right before he was supposed to speak at church one Sunday. A security guard had found him on the bathroom floor in the fetal position, crying, trembling, full on in a panic attack. And he was supposed to be on stage in like 15 minutes. Mm. 
And so somehow, some way, he was able to calm down um, and and compose himself. And he got on stage and gave the message. And I talk about it in the book, how he's on stage speaking and I'm backstage crying and no one in the audience would have known. And it was the following week that he ended up in the hospital after another major, major panic attack during the day. And I called his doctor. I'm like, what do we do? We can't live like this anymore. I, nothing is helping. Like, what should we do? And she suggested to take him to the hospital. And so I did. And they ran a bunch of tests and did a bunch of blood work. And they're like, we don't, you know, we don't know what's going on, but we don't see anything wrong, you know, in his blood work or in any of the tests. And so we all just decided like this guy, maybe this guy is just burnt out. Like maybe he's exhausted. Maybe he just never took a break to grieve his dad. And he's been, you know, running so fast and running so hard. And we have this young family, like maybe he just needs to take a season of rest. And so we put him on the sabbatical and there was no time limit. Um, It wasn't like three months, six Mm. months, one year. It really was take as much time as you need. And everybody was so supportive and the board of directors was so transparent with the church. They got on stage and they told the church, Andrew's been suffering from panic attacks. He's been having anxiety. He's going to take a sabbatical and we don't know when he's going to be back. So there was no pressure. The only person putting pressure on Andrew was Andrew. Hmm. Hmm. What was that sabbatical like for you? What happened? What got better? What didn't get better? Yeah. So about two weeks in, um, his doctor had suggested he see a psychiatrist. It was actually her father, the psychiatrist was. And so we went to go see her dad and, um, I stepped out of the room so he could run the test and ask him a bunch of questions. And when I came back into the room and the psychiatrist turned and looked at me and said, your husband has depression. And I think I should have seen it coming, um, but I didn't. I mean, I was shocked. I was stunned. I didn't say a word. We walked silently back to the car, slid into his little black sports car, and I turned and looked at him, and I said, how did we end up here? Like, really, in my eyes, he was just this resilient man that had pushed through so much that I just never thought we would end up in a psychiatrist's office with depression. I just never imagined that being in the cards for us and that being part of our story. Like, it was so shocking. But the doctor was very confident that he was on the low end of the spectrum, that with um, medication and rest and time off work and therapy, that he would be, that he would bounce right back, that he'd be back to work in no time, that he'd be totally fine. And so we started on this journey with depression. And um, again, you know, I just tried to create space for him to rest, for him to do what he needed to do to get better. And so I took on as much responsibility as I could um, with the church stuff and with our boys. And so I just created the space for him to rest. And he did. Um, Our therapist in one session told him that he needed to run to the back of a cave and Mm. rest. And so he called our bedroom the cave and he spent a lot of time in the cave, um, resting and sleeping and crying and wrestling. It was just, it was this wrestling. That's what it felt like. It felt like Andrew was wrestling with himself. Mm -hmm. He was wrestling with his own emotions. He was wrestling with this depression. He was wrestling with this darkness. There was a spiritual component to it as well. And I don't say darkness to stigmatize mental illness. I say darkness because that's what it felt like for him. And that's what it felt like for us. It really felt dark. And it really felt like there was just this big dark cloud that had rolled in 
to our home. Um, and I remember saying, like, I feel like our home is a hostile environment. I remember saying that to him. It just felt like it didn't feel like that peaceful environment that it did before. It felt like this tense. Um, the boys were always kind of rowdy and kind of at each other and Andrew's trying to rest. And I don't know what kind of husband I'm going to get every day. I didn't know who was going to come walking out of the bedroom. I didn't know if he would be happy or sad or angry or overcome with anxiety or if he would just be normal and want to like do yard work or go to the beach for the day. Like every day was so different. And we had moved to this property, this private property um, behind a gate even. And so we were very isolated. You know, we were isolated to our own little private property. And I felt like I was very isolated as well. Like I didn't have a lot of people that I could let in because a lot of my friends went to our church and Andrew was their pastor. And so I didn't want them to really know what was going on. So it was a really hard summer. Our boys were young. They were two, four, and five. Um, so just a very difficult journey. But we were doing everything we knew to do to get him better. He was seeing the psychiatrist every other week. He was taking medication. We were seeing a therapist together for two hours every week. He had gone on solo trips by himself to go spend time with God. He went on a trip to go spend time with a mentor. We did a two-week road trip, just the two of us. Like We were trying our best to create space for healing and to be intentional with the time. Um, and so by the end of July, the doctors actually thought he was getting better. They thought mm. that going back to work would be the next right step in his healing. And so, and Andrew was ready, you know, Andrew being this driven, ambitious, full of vision kind of guy hated that the depression was, um, had put him on a sabbatical. He hated that this was distracting him from his calling. And so on August 1st, 2018, he returned to work and he was fired up. I mean, he was ready to talk about mental illness. He was ready to talk about his journey with depression and anxiety. And at the time, even though it was just a few years ago, at the time, not a lot of pastors were talking about it. Mm -hmm. And so he addressed it head on. He was sharing his own experience. He gave out the suicide hotline number. He gave out suicide statistics. He talked about depression. He quoted um, things from the NAMI website. Like he was all over it. And the response was great. I mean, he got a standing ovation the first day he was back. Church was packed. People were sitting on the floor. The response after the message, people were coming back for two or three services to hear the message again. Like the response was beautiful. And people were so excited that he was being transparent and being authentic and being honest. And it really helped a lot of people. And so he gave these two powerful messages and then headed into the third week. He was ready. You know, he was ready for Sunday, had his message written. We had a team rally that Friday night that he was excited about and was, had prepared for that. And then he went into the office on Thursday of that week and had a really bad day. He wasn't fully healed. He told our family and told our staff that he was at about 65% when he went back to work. He wasn't at 100%. He wasn't 100% back to himself, and he was hoping to ease back into ministry over time. And so his mind was still broken and not able to process some information that he received in that, in that meeting that day rationally like he normally would. So he had this mental breakdown. And we all surrounded him with our love and support and encouragement, and we're all there for him. And So you were there that day in that meeting or yeah. after that meeting? 
after that meeting, we're all surrounding him. The, the staff is surrounding him. Our family's surrounding him. We're asking questions. We're listening to him talk. And, you know, part of the mental illness for him is that he would just talk and talk and talk and talk and talk for hours. And oftentimes, um, all that talking, he would grow angry. So his depression manifested itself in anger a lot too, which I think isn't something that we normally um, put with depression. Like I think we automatically think just oh, sad. Yeah. You would think it's withdrawn, right? But yeah, maybe it comes out sad. hot. Yeah, sleeping, sad. But like anger and frustration um, mm. was one of the main symptoms for Andrew. Um and critical. And so it was hard, you know, it was hard to surround somebody with love, um, that was pushing back against that love. Um, but we kept trying to surround him. And so the following day, while we were away for just a little bit, we were making arrangements for the weekend, trying to take care of it. So he wouldn't have to worry about it. We knew that he couldn't speak that weekend. We knew he couldn't do the team rally that night. Um, we knew that he needed to get more help. It was a very big, clear sign to us that he wasn't ready to go back to work. And so while we were away, we were calling in patient places, scheduling a guest speaker for Sunday. And while we were doing that, he attempted suicide. And we were completely shocked. I describe it as like a child drowning in a swimming pool at a birthday party. Like that's how it felt. It felt like we were absolutely surrounding him with as much love and support and um, trying to make arrangements and take care of everything. We were doing everything we could do to surround him with our love and he just slipped through our fingers. So he was rushed to the hospital and they ran a bunch of tests and unfortunately there was nothing that they could do. And so on August 25th, 2018, Andrew died and I was handed a brand new life um, that I never saw coming as a single mom of three boys, two, four, and five, and a widow, young 29-year-old widow. I am so sorry. Yeah. Um, you know, you, you, you think back to those moments and... Um, you say so many helpful things in the book. One of the things that you say, Kayla, is um, there was once where Andrew tipped his hand that he was perhaps suicidal. And as somebody who had my own dark season, you're 2018, even hearing you describe it now in this interview, sounds eerily similar to my 2006. Mine had a different ending. Um, but can you talk a little bit about tipping out um, that one time he mentioned that he might be thinking of taking his life. Yeah, I'll never forget it. Um, we were sitting at the kitchen counter. It was after the boys had gone to bed and I was venting my frustrations of just feeling exa completely exhausted and run down from holding and caring so much that summer. And his response to that was he was sharing that he was run down and he was exhausted and that he was up in the middle of the night the night before and he had all of his staff organization charts spread all over the counter and he felt completely overwhelmed and thought about killing himself. 
And my reaction to his admission was, Andrew, that is the most selfish thing you could ever do. You would never do that to me and the boys. I can't believe you're even saying that. Like that's, I was so completely shocked. And here I am trying to tell him how I'm struggling and he's telling me he's just going to leave me. That's how it felt. And so I wasn't able to take a couple steps back and even hear um, his pain. I didn't even hear his pain. I thought he was being dramatic. And so I reacted out of my own emotion instead of responding from a place of love. And so what I've learned now and what he told me, his response to me when I said that was, Kayla, that's not what you say to someone who's struggling with suicidal thoughts. Like you need to do some research and come up with something better to say because that's not what you say. And he was right. It's hmm. not what you say to someone who tells you they're struggling with suicidal thoughts. You don't come back at them and tell them that they're selfish and that they would never do that and like retaliate and attack them with your own emotion, even though it might, all those emotions might rise up in you in that moment. Um, that moment may never happen again. So we have to seize that moment. I mean, for me, it never happened again. He never talked about it again. And I never asked about it. I never said the word suicide again after that conversation, um, but I wish I would have. And so what I've learned now um, is that that moment is a time to respond. It's a time to lean in. It's a time to ask questions, questions like, do you have a suicide plan? What problem are you trying to solve through suicide? Do you know when or how you would do it? Um, that's a time to take it seriously. It's a time to reach out for help. It's a time to call the suicide hotline number, text the crisis text line, or pick up the phone and call the therapist and tell them, or call the psychiatrist and tell them, I didn't do any of that. I didn't make any phone calls. I didn't tell anybody. I didn't take it seriously. I really truly believed that it would never happen. And it did. If someone, you know, is, uh, in that position you were in that summer where they heard someone say, you know what, I think I'm just going to end it or whatever. You just kind of went through, uh, the way you'd respond now, knowing what you know now. So is that what you say? You take it seriously? You like what? Can you just slow that down a little yeah. bit and tell us what to say? Because many of us will be in that situation and we might be able to respond differently. Yeah, I think taking it seriously is the number one. Um, not not brushing it off, not acting like, ah, they're just being dramatic. They would never do that. Like actually taking it seriously and and getting comfortable with the word suicide. I think that word suicide makes us feel so uncomfortable, um, just the word itself. Um, but being willing to ask about it, if someone tells you that, then follow up the next day or the next week or the next few weeks. Like, hey, are you? how, how are those suicidal thoughts? Are you still thinking about killing yourself? Are you still struggling with suicidal thoughts? How, how are you feeling today? How are you feeling this week? But saying that word suicide first I think gives them permission to also say that word suicide again. Um, but when they say it first and we uh, react out of our own emotion, I think it makes them want to curl up and never say it again, never be vulnerable and honest again. So taking it seriously, reaching out for help, using those lifelines and text lines, 
um, including other people in the process. So if they're seeing a therapist, telling the therapist, if they're seeing a psychiatrist, telling the psychiatrist, like those seem like basic things, but I didn't do that. I really just didn't take it seriously. I think a lot of us have been in that situation. We didn't know what to do and we didn't do it. And it's easier not to talk about it. Yeah, Yeah, go ahead. I think, I think it also, we're trying to protect our person. I think it can feel embarrassing. I think that's part of it too, is that it can feel like this, it's this embarrassing thing to talk about. I decided you don't really mean that. So we're just going to pretend you don't, right? Yeah, Yeah. There's so much shame. Yeah. Yeah. That's it. There's so much shame under that for you and for him. That's good. You go through a number of myths in the book that I found really helpful about eternity and heaven and so on. But myth number two, I really want to drill down on. And you talk about suicidal ideation and you said some really, really helpful things about that. So can you kind of walk us through that framework and some of the thoughts that might have been going through Andrew's mind, looking back on it. And uh, I know in my own season, which again, talk about shame, I don't like to talk about, but there is a logic to ending it that mm-hmm. is so ironclad logical. And now as we were talking about before we started recording, I look back on that season, it's almost like I'm looking back on someone else's life in that moment going, how could I have thought that? But I can promise you it was rock solid logical in the moment. Yeah, I think one of the biggest misconceptions, one of the biggest myths is that suicide is selfish. Um, and you know, that that was my response to him that day. I was like, that is the most selfish thing you could ever do. And so, um, you know, I think when somebody is struggling with suicidal thoughts, I love the way that Ann Voskamp described it one time in a blog that she wrote. And she talked about how it feels like being trapped in a burning building. And the only way to escape the flames is to jump. And so suicide is this overwhelming pain that feels like it's never going to go away. There's a suicidologist um, that I refer to in the book that described it as this psychic, this unbearable psychological pain where suicide feels like the only solution. And, you know, I have this um, so much empathy and compassion for Andrew now, today, than I did then because I've struggled with suicidal thoughts during my grieving journey. I'm still on a grieving journey, but in those first uh, few months and few years, you know, it's so dark and waking up to the reality, a reality that I couldn't change every single day and waking up with this overwhelming pain every single day. Um, there were days where I felt like I can't do this. I can't live with this overwhelming, unbearable pain for another day. Like I, I want out of my own body. It's a wanting to escape your own body. It's not this selfish decision. It's a pain problem. Um, it's an overwhelming, unbearable, I need to escape my body kind of pain. And I think that's the the biggest misconception is that we think um, that it's this decision to um, leave everybody and to just escape and they don't love us because they left us and we see it as this like personal attack kind of thing. Um, when it really 
It really is a pain problem. That's why I've even changed my language. I don't say committed suicide because Mm. the word committed puts shame and blame onto the shoulders of the person who died. And the word committed is a word we attach to phrases like committed a sin or committed a murder or committed a crime. And all it does is just heap that shame and blame onto the person's shoulders and it's not their fault. And so I use the phrase died by suicide. And that's truly what I believe happened. I don't believe Andrew chose this. I don't believe he would have ever chosen this. I think he um, was in unbearable psychological pain and that led to the suicide. And the suicide was a result of that unbearable psychological pain and the depression and anxiety and um, spiritual warfare that he was under as well. That just all came to a boiling point. And for him, that felt like the only solution to his problems was to die. How have you gotten through those moments yourself where you decided to keep going and be a mom too? How are you getting through those moments, Kayla? Yeah. Yeah. If I'm honest, I had one of those moments even last week where my kids are gone for the day and I'm like, I I am numb. I don't like this. I Even though I, I'm in this brand new, not brand new, but brand new to me, um, it's like a 1950s home, <laughs> mm. but I'm in this home and living in this place that I've desired to live in for so long and still have just this overwhelming pain from the loss of Andrew. Um, but what's been so helpful to me in those moments, I obviously I know that it's not the solution. And so that, that by itself um, is really helpful to me is that I've, I have been a survivor of suicide loss. And so I know that suicide is not the solution to my pain. Um, And what I've learned these last few years is that living with the pain is possible. It is possible to live with unbearable pain. Living with the pain is possible and building a beautiful life around that pain is possible. And when I have those moments... I know those moments are going to pass. I think that's helped me too, is that I know that like, yes, I am feeling this way right now in this moment and I don't want to keep doing this. Like I fully feel the, the weight of that fully. But I also know that tomorrow is another day that there will be good days, that there will be better days ahead, that there will be beautiful moments, that I will laugh again with my kids and that I will write, hopefully write more books and that I will have purpose and that I will have meaning and that I will see more sunsets. It's like reminding myself in those dark moments that yes, this is how I feel now and welcoming that feeling and acknowledging that feeling and not trying to dismiss that feeling away, but welcoming it and acknowledging it and accepting it and also knowing that it's a feeling um, and it's going to pass. And so for me, you know, i it's a crying out to God. Um, it's been a crying out to God for the last 10 years through everything that we've walked through, but it's a sitting with God in that pain and inviting God into that pain for me. Um, it's a calling friends. I have a couple of girlfriends that I'm super honest with. I'll tell them like, I'm feeling suicidal today. I'll pick up the phone and I'll call them and, and tell them and just be really honest. And that helps me too, not to be alone in it. I think the biggest, most dangerous thing we can do is have those feelings and thoughts alone. Um, We have to invite other people in, even though it can feel so embarrassing and even though you don't want to make a big deal about it and even though 
it passed the next day and you're not feeling like that anymore, like you have to tell somebody, you have to invite somebody in. If you are struggling with suicidal thoughts and you haven't told a single person, you have to tell somebody. And maybe you don't have friends you can trust or family you can trust. And maybe it's the therapist. Maybe it's making the appointment with the therapist and telling the therapist or the medical professional or the psychiatrist. Um, But you have to tell somebody. I think the most dangerous thing we can do when we're struggling with suicidal thoughts is to keep those thoughts to ourselves. Mm. Thank you. And thanks for sharing that with leaders too. Do you find that bringing it to the light helps break the darkness? Even being able to say it out loud. Yeah. 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 You have mentioned this, you talk about it in the book, but the spiritual component. And, uh, I think the great mistake we make with um, the demonic or the evil is we think everything is demonic or nothing's demonic. We think it's all, you know, everything's spiritual or nothing's spiritual. But you you think or you believe that there was a spiritual component to what Andrew was struggling with and perhaps what the two of you were struggling with. Can, can you talk about that? Because uh, I'm I'm familiar with that. Yeah, I have a whole chapter in the book called Stranger Things, um, kind of a play on a series that he did one time at church called Stranger Things and the series. But it is strange. You know, it's a strange thing to talk about and not everybody believes in it. And so I was kind of back and forth on whether or not to include it in there. But it really was such a big part of our journey and a very big part of Andrew's confusion um, and pain. So he, for him... um, it was things that he would see. Um, he would see creatures, which I know sounds so strange, and I couldn't see them. But he would have these hallucination kind of things. And um, to this day, you know, I don't know if it was the depression or if it was the medication or if it was real spiritual warfare happening, but I know for him that it was very real. It felt very real for him. He would have these experiences, um, and he had one major one that I talk about in the book where there were like these five creatures in our bedroom, and he said they all had different names, and they were all saying different things to him. And the names of them were things like anxiety, depression, success. Um, It was all the things that he, I think, was afraid of. Um, it was that fear had manifested itself into these things that he was seeing. Um, and so, you know, I right away was like, okay, this is really a spiritual thing happening and Andrew's getting attacked by the enemy. And if I really believe that there's a real enemy that, and there's a real spiritual warfare happening that we don't see, if I really believe that, then I'm like calling in the troops and we're going to have people over here. And so I called in some people from the church and they came over and anointed Andrew with oil and went around our home and anointed every room with oil and prayed over him and prayed over every room and prayed over me and prayed over our kids. And But it, but it didn't help. Um, I think that's like the main thing is that like... We, we, we combated it with what we knew to combat it with. Um, we combated it with prayer and um, with intercession and with, you know, anointing oil and like doing all the things on paper that you're supposed to do to like make that stuff go away. And it would not go away. Um, it just had this grip on Andrew and he would have nightmares. A lot of the times it would be nightmares. Um And it was just really dark and really scary. And he, I think it was really confusing for him as well. And so, you know, for me, 
the day that the suicide happened, I often wonder what else was in the room with him that day? What else was he seeing that day? Because he had been seeing things throughout the summer. What what voices was he hearing that day? Um, what were some of those inner demons um, that he was seeing that day or hearing from that day? Because I really think that's what it is. You know, I think some of those things, even those names of those creatures that he saw that day were these inner demons, you know, anxiety and and depression and success and failure and all these things that we um, are up against that yeah. the enemy tries to take us down with. Um, and he was just so attuned to that. And I couldn't see anything, you know, and I walked into the room and he's under the sheets crying and terrified. I am not seeing what he's seeing. Um, but I tried to approach those moments with love and compassion and prayer. And that's all I knew to do. Um, but it was very real for him. Mm. You, you strike me and the book is actually very real and very hopeful, which is a rare combination. And, um, I find that incidents, traumatic incidents, let alone the loss of a husband to suicide, and a father-in-law, you've been through a lot. Like you look at the major stressors in life, you've moved, job change, all these things. Uh, one of those things is is significant enough. And they never leave people in the same place, either grow closer to God or further away from him. Your faith seems to be strong. And there's an ethic of hope um, in your writing and also in the conversation. Um, can you talk about that a little bit? Like why, how, how did that impact you? Why did you lean into God or uh, not away from him? Or, or how did that unfold? Yeah, you know, it, it was such a frustrating thing for me because here we are in this wilderness season of mental illness and we're crying out to God, crying out to God, begging God for healing, having people over to pray over our home. And it feels like God is distant. It feels like, where are you, God? And then Andrew dies, and then it feels like God is everywhere and everything all of the time. Like, that's the God that I met after Andrew died was this omnipresent God, where mm. literally I, f- I felt um, his love, I felt his presence, I felt his comfort in everything all of the time. I could get lost in a sunset and feel God's love. Um, I could be on the ocean paddle boarding and feel close to heaven. Like it just felt like God was everywhere and he really carried us through. He really carried me and my boys through those first few months. And I called them these little kisses from heaven. And it was like these little miracles. Um, there was one that I that I um, talk about in the book where my son, um, it was an experience with this caterpillar. And it was the day that I had told them that Andrew died. I'd sat them down and I'd waited a week because I wanted to do it the right way. And so I sat them down and told them. And afterwards we were coloring in this coloring book someone had given us for children who are experiencing loss. And it had these life stages of a caterpillar. And so it had like the egg and the caterpillar and the cocoon and the butterfly. And we were sitting there coloring that and then it was time to take a nap. And so we close the coloring book and we go over to the curtains and I pull on the curtains to close them. And there's this little tiny green caterpillar on our curtain in the living room. 
and I grab it. I like don't touch bugs, but I like grab that little caterpillar and I run over to Smith. I'm like, look at there's a caterpillar. We were just drawing and talking about this. And he goes, it's a miracle from God. Mm. So that's the God that I've met in my grief and in my healing is this God of little tiny kid sized miracles, like a miracle that my son Smith can see and understand as a miracle and big um, God-sized miracles, um, just like the provision that came in for our family. You know, Andrew died by suicide, so there was no life insurance. He mm. opted out of Social Security. Um, so really, there is no support. But the provision that came in from the big C church and the community was 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 huge, you know, and matched that. And so even big things like that to a small thing like a caterpillar, it felt like we were just covered um, by the hand of God. And so Mm. I was able to fall back into the arms of God from the very beginning because he made himself so known. And I really felt like at everywhere I turned, every corner I turned, he was there and he cared and he was near and he was making a way for us to move forward. And that's what he's done. I mean, he's opened door after door after door after door for me to share the story, for me to write the book. Like, I haven't had to go pushing doors down. Um, God has just opened door after door after door after door. And I just get to step through them and really sit back in awe of all of it. I think that's the biggest um, place I find myself in a lot of days is just sitting back in the mystery um, and the awe of all of it, of the life that I used to live, of the life that I'm currently living, of the great loss that I've experienced, and of the great joy that I have today. Um, It's all such a mystery. And you know what? I think that's okay. Like, we're not supposed to have it all figured out. Um, We don't, we don't, We don't get to decide what happens to us. We don't get to decide what wilderness seasons we walk through. We don't get to decide who we lose and when we lose them. And um, I've just learned to hold life loosely, um, to chase after joy, and to sit in God's love in all of it whether that's on the sand with my boys at the ocean or whether that's dancing and listening to worship music in the living room or whether that's sitting with a girlfriend at dinner over a glass of wine. Like, I think I met, I really did meet the God that's in everything. Mm -hmm. And I think um, that's been a really beautiful gift to me in this season is that my spirituality has expanded and grown and the depth of love that I feel and have for God has expanded and grown as well. Hmm. How are the boys? They're wild. They're good. (laughs) They're so good. Um, You really wouldn't know what they've been through unless you knew. They are so resilient. They are so fun. They are so funny. They are so full of life. They are so full of joy. 
they lost their dad, um, but they are living their life. And it's going to be a lifelong journey for them. You know, it's going to change. So that's yeah. where we're at today. There's seven, six, and four. And, um, you know, they've thrived. Even with our recent change and move, they had to move schools and we moved homes and they're making new friends. And I am just so extremely, deeply proud of them. I am so proud of them. And I know they feel it, you know, like even at the beach, um, I feel it a lot when my son Smith is learning how to surf. And then, so he'll be out there. My son Smith and Jed are both learning how to surf, but he's more into it. So he'll be out there, um, in the waves and trying to just teach himself how to surf. And then there's another kid his same age that's out there with his dad. So I know that they feel it and they see it and they miss him and they wish that he could be there pushing them into waves with them, but they don't complain about it. Um, we talk about Andrew all the time. Loss is part of who we are as a family. Um, heaven, we talk about heaven a ton. Um, we talk about Andrew a ton, um, but they really are just these resilient happy, joy-filled, wild, adventurous little guys. And I hope and pray that that's their reality as they continue growing, that that they don't ever go into that dark, dark place of grief. Um, I, I, I pray that over them, that they get to have this acceptance of the loss that's happened um, and also an acceptance of the beautiful life that they've been given to hmm. help us with our words. Um, you know, w- what are some helpful things that people say in a time of loss, like you've experienced And What are some like, please don't say that. Please, please don't be that way. <laughs> I'm sure you got stuff in both categories. I say stay away from any kind of cliche thing, um, cliche little phrase, um, like time heals all wounds or, you know, things like that, that just like are not true. Um, I think the best thing that you can do if you're trying to sit with somebody in their loss and in their pain is simply just to sit with them is to not come with an agenda is to not try to have all the right things to say is to not not show up because you don't have the right things to say. I think oftentimes we're afraid we don't have the right things to say, so we kind of just stay away. But please show up and please um, just sit with that person in pain and ask questions and talk about the person that they lost. We don't want you not to talk about them. Um, We want you to remember them with us. we want you to honor them with us. Um, we don't want to just brush it to the wayside and we don't want to just forget it ever happened. And we'll tell you if we don't want to talk about it. Mm. Um, but I think the best thing we can do for anyone in pain is just to sit with them. And you know, that's what we see Jesus doing throughout scripture. He just pulls up a chair and is sitting beside people in their pain and asking them questions. And I think that's the best thing and the best way we can show people our love and that we care. Anything we haven't covered that you want to share with leaders? You don't have to try so hard. I would say that. Um, make space to enjoy life because life goes by so fast and life is meant to be enjoyed. 
So if you're working so hard and leading this large, thriving, growing organization and you're overwhelmed with stress and you're filled with anxiety, take the break, schedule the sabbatical, book the vacation, go sit on the beach for a day, spend time in solitude, have fun, go have fun with your kids, go push your kids into waves, go do whatever you can do during coronavirus, go for a hike, I don't know, go go to the lake, and we can't go to like Disneyland anymore, but um, yeah, enjoy life, create space to enjoy life, and share your life with others. Kayla, it's been a gift to spend some time with you today. Thank you. Um, tell us where people can uh, tell us about the book. It's called Fear Gone Wild, available everywhere books are. What about a website? And uh, you're pretty active on Instagram, right? Yeah, Instagram is probably the best place to find me. My handle is Kayla Steck. Um, KaylaStuckline.com is my little website. Um, but yeah, the book is available everywhere. There's an audio book. Would you narrate? Very, that's how I accessed it. I thought you did a marvelous job on that. Thank you so much. Yeah. Thanks for being with us today. Thanks so much for having me. It's been an honor. Thank you. Well, that was a very emotional and um, powerful conversation. I also listened to her book. She read it herself. I'm really into audiobooks these days, as I know a lot of you are. Um, I would highly recommend it. And if you've ever struggled, if you're just discouraged, if you're defeated, if you are struggling in any way, I would just encourage you to reach out. And um, some of you, it may involve a visit to your doctor or counselor. For some of you, it's just like, don't don't stay alone. I know in my dark period, just being able to have some friends around and a counselor to talk to and a supportive wife and, and bringing the the darkness into light really helped. I know that doesn't solve everything every time, but uh, hey, I just want you to know we're on your side uh, and we're trying to help. So uh, you can learn more by going to the show notes. If you want to see the transcripts, if you want to get links to anything Kayla and I talked about, all the details are at kerryneuhoff.com slash episode 385. And of course, that's free for you. I've got a what I'm thinking about segment. I want to talk to you about 2021. I have a free resource that I would love to get into your hands if you haven't already signed up. It's called the Church Leader Toolkit. We'll talk about that in a moment. And then next week, we kind of continue in this vein with a conversation with Jeff and Tara Matson. And we talked about not, you know, death by suicide or depression or that, but we did talk about why do so many leaders collapse under the weight of leadership? Why all the moral failures that we've seen? And Jeff and Tara have got a brand new book and they have counseled and coached hundreds of leaders and they share how an integrity gap develops, how you get in a bad place as a leader. I found it really, really fascinating. Here's an excerpt. The signs that you're a narcissist, um, you tend to uh, defend every decision that you ever make. If somebody disagrees with you um, over time, then you will start to make them out to be the enemy. And you'll see a pattern with narcissistic leaders mm -hmm. that their staff doesn't stick around very long mm -hmm. or they get booted out and then they go start over in a very completely different community or sector um, to find a new group of people who will think they're amazing. Most narcissists are pretty um, charismatic and, and know how to woo people into their inner circle. And they attract actually those victim right. type trauma survivors. So that's next time on the podcast. Subscribers, you get that absolutely for free. And uh, Andy Stanley will help us kick off 2021 along with Patrick Lencioni 
John Acuff, Rachel Cruz, Lakers GM, Rod Palinka, and so many others. It's going to be uh, pretty cool. We're really looking forward to 2021. Uh, well, now it's time for what I am thinking about. I'm going to talk to you about um, digital communication because, hey, that's something we're all doing a lot more of and the Church Leader Toolkit. In the meantime, if you haven't yet checked out the Dwell app, you can get Dwell, an audio Bible app today by going to dwellapp.io forward slash carry. They'll give you 20% off an annual or lifetime subscription. And by Church Stack, you can learn more and increase engagement and encourage giving by going to pushpay.com forward slash carry for more on that. Well, here's what I'm thinking about. I'm thinking about 2021 and what are the practical um, skills and tools that you need to really thrive. Um, I know a lot of people, some people have momentum in 2020. A lot of organizations kind of, you know, got caught off balance. What do you do? So if you go to churchleadertoolkit.com, I've got some free resources for you. It's absolutely free. Uh, and uh, I want to share a little bit. I've got a unit on digital preaching because preaching into a camera is totally different. So how do you do it well? I've been doing digital preaching for years and um, leading teams digitally for years, etc. So I want to give you just a sample of what you will get in the free church leader toolkit. Um, and again, that's only available till the end of the month, till the end of December, but we want to get it in your hands. So a couple of things I learned, and this is just a sample of what you can get for you and your team for free. But on, on digital preaching, I give you five tips. So uh, I'm going to go through them really quickly, explain them a lot more in the toolkit. But uh, what really helps? Well, speaking in front of a crowd is totally different than speaking in front of a camera with no crowd, or I think this is going to be the reality. You're going to have people in the room, but way more people are going to watch through the lens of a camera than are in the room. So how do you do that? How do you do that well? Or let's pick the studio setting, which a lot of us are in. How do you do it when you got no feedback at all? Well, I, I like this. Speak through the camera, not to the camera. I mean, when you're looking at a production crew and a guy in a headset, you know, or a woman in a headset, it's kind of like, yeah, yeah, I don't know. Who am I really connecting with? So what I like to do is imagine the audience and I like to imagine them where they're at, whether that's an actual person or the person you're trying to reach in your head, in your mind, in your heart. Uh, speak through the camera, not to the camera. A uh, second point for video, because I think when you're doing video, it's very different than a live event, is uh, cut the undisciplined intro. You know, in so much live communication, it's like, well, it's such an honor to be here. Or, hey, did you see the game last night? Or, wow, how about that weather, right? Well, the challenge with, with digital preaching is attention spans are much lower, okay? For somebody to walk out of a room that you're in when you're speaking takes a lot of courage. It happens very rarely. For someone to simply scroll away while they're on their phone happens all the time, and you do it all the time. So you got to cut the undisciplined intro. And, and besides, a, a lot of people are going to watch or listen to what you say after you say it. So the weather could be totally different or they don't know your team or, you know, all those little cultural reference points don't mean anything when you're watching the video six months later from 2000 miles away. So what you can do, cut the undisciplined intro, just start, like start with a pain point. Um, hey, here's what you're probably thinking about or start with a promise in this video. I'll share five keys to better digital preaching or start with a story. I call that plot. So cut the undisciplined intro. Number three, and I explain a lot more about that in the training, by the way, go shorter. Uh, look, at I do long form podcasting. I don't know how long we are in this conversation. I had a two and a half hour episode this year, okay? But not on video. Video, video the attention span is much shorter. 
So uh, five minutes of boring is five minutes too long. And what you really need to do is start tracking your engagement time because you might have a thousand views on a video and you think, oh, look at that, we got a thousand views. But then you click into YouTube Studio or Instagram Analytics and you realize most people watch for eight seconds or eight minutes. So uh, go shorter and use your analytics to figure out what's really connecting and what's not. Fourth point, don't memorize your talk, understand it. I rarely read from a manuscript. And some of the best preaching advice I ever got was you don't have to memorize your talk. You just need to understand it from the beginning, the middle, and the end where you want to go. I give you some tips on how to do that in the free church leader toolkit. And then finally, just this note, don't try to be somebody you're not. Um, with video, we're all watching each other, okay? And you might think, well, I, I want to be as good as, you know, Furtick or Rich Wilkerson, or Christine Kane, Mike Todd, Sadie Robertson, okay? Look, everybody knows you're not them. There are people I wish I was more like. I'm not like them, but I get to be me. And, you know, the, it's it's a little disappointing when you get to be you, but um, when you get to be you every day, you can do that every day. You can repeat that for the rest of your life. And I give you a couple of tips. I'll just touch on them briefly, but in the toolkit, we go into further detail. But try to be helpful and try to be personal. If you help a lot of people, they're going to be anxious to see what you have to say. And if you're personal, if you're just you, um, like that's the joy, you know, hundreds of episodes into this podcast, I think you just kind of get to know me, right? Like that's who I am, good, bad, or ugly. That's just who I am. But, you know, I'm, I'm not as funny as some of the other people or as articulate as some of the people I really admire or as smart as some of the people I listen to, but I do get to be me and it can take you further places than you imagine. And there's an authenticity to that that I think really resonates with the next generation. I know most of you who are listening to this show are younger leaders. You know, I, I just love the fact that we get to have this conversation. We get to have it open and honestly and yeah, they're better communicators, they're better interviewers, they're better this, but we get to do this. So just don't try to be somebody you're not. And on this podcast, 14 million downloads into it, I am shocked at what happens if you just show up with yourself day after day after day. So if you found that helpful, you can find more at churchleadertoolkit.com. Just go to churchleadertoolkit.com. We got that available for you till the end of February. Thank you so much for listening. And I hope our time together today helps you lead like never before. You've been listening to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast. Join us next time for more insights on leadership, change, and personal growth to help you lead like never before.